Well, if you've not done so yet, let's turn our Bibles together to 1 John chapter 2, where we will focus our attention on this Sunday in verses 12 through 14. If you're not used to using a Bible, when we say chapter, it's these larger bold print numbers, and then the verse numbers are the smaller numbers that are throughout the sentences. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take this Bible home. These black Bibles scattered throughout the pews are our gift to you because we believe these are the words of God that we are reading and trying to understand and apply to our life. Before I read the passage, I'd like to inform most of you of uh, an event that took place in the life of Embassy Church that many of you won't know about, but some of you will, and that is an opportunity that our elders had to partner with a church that was about 90 miles away from here at the time. It was called Redeeming Grace Chapel, and they had a solo pastor, and then they had no other elders, so we were like an advisory elder board to provide oversight. So that's some of the backstory. So Kankakee is the area, if you know that on the map, Kankakee, Illinois. And here's the reason I bring up the story. This group of Christians started meeting together, and they did not have uh, an elder pastor to regularly preach God's word to them. So they wanted one, but weren't able to find one yet. And in the meantime, they watched sermons in a YMCA building on a television screen, and then they sang songs together, prayed together, gave offering, basically everything that's happening right now at Embassy, except instead of me, imagine television screen behind me. And then that was church for the day. And eventually they hired a live pastor. And he's a friend of mine. And that's why he reached out and said, I'd love some further pastoral support since we don't have other pastors and elders. This guy's name's Andy, and Andy said that he, even though he's not best-selling book deal pastor, doesn't have a live web stream that people would be watching all over the world, and no one knows his name outside of a small group of people, was a better pastor than the celebrity pastor they were watching on their television screen. In the time that we find ourselves, this idea of celebrity pastors and watching sermons on a TV screen is so commonplace for you and for me that that story probably sounds rather hmm, boring, not that interesting or fascinating. But here's the reason I share the story. I 100% think that John would agree with Andy's assessment. That knowing his flock and preaching to them, even though he was less experienced, less skilled, and is not touring the world like this TV preacher that was on the television screen that the church had chosen to watch, he was a better pastor for them. And in light of that story, I think that'll help us better understand what John's trying to do in the loving, fatherly, personal tone of verses 12 to 14. Follow along as I read. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And that will end our reading of God's holy, inspired and an errant word. My prayer 
is that he will write these truths on our heart so that we would become the family of God he is wanting us to be here at Embassy. Amen? This sentence is a little longer. I try and make it shorter, but I think this is my best attempt to summarize what I just read to you and then apply it to you. Instead of writing, I'm not writing, I'm preaching to you, so I would like to summarize today's message this way. I, Phil Howell, I am preaching to you. The Embassy Church family, because you are Christians whose sins have been forgiven, and you have a personal relationship with God the Father, and your strength is in his word to overcome the devil. I'm preaching to you. That's what I'm doing now. You, Embassy Church, and we're a family. And the reason I'm doing so is because you are Christians whose sins have been forgiven, who has a relationship with God the Father, and your strength is in the word of God as you defeat the devil and overcome the evil one. That's what I think John was doing in his day, and that's what I want to do right now today. I want to preach to you. Embassy Church family, because of the realities of the gospel. If you want a shorter summary, that would be it. First, I am preaching to you, so my question is, am I your pastor? Who is your pastor? I think these people had a pastor, a shepherd. That's the word pastor in Greek, if you're wondering. What's the word pastor mean? It's just a a Greek word that means shepherd. John writes to these people in a personal way and in a poetic way, which is why when you are looking at these Pew Bibles, these English Standard Version translations, it's indented. And it's pretty obvious, isn't it, how repetitive this little section is? It, it sticks out visually. It sticks out audibly when you hear it. It's, it's unlike anything else in the rest of the letter, which is why we've chosen this to, to be enough for today's message. It should stick out. We should pause and say, what is John doing here? Well, he's explaining why he's writing. He's explaining who he's writing to. And it's because he's familiar with them. He's their pastor. Do you remember when David preached in November? He said, Second John might be a cover letter for First John. So flip over to Second John briefly. I don't know if we can be for sure, but I, I think David was right to point us to that idea. Second John could have been a cover letter that's even more personal. And then First John is the main bulk of what he wanted to say. And notice the first two verses. The elder, which is another term synonymous with pastor. John, the elder, to the elect lady and her children. And then notice the warm, tender affection whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Drop down to verse 12. I have, I have so much more I want to say to you. I want to write and write and write, but I would rather not use paper and ink. Texts and emails, letters, they can only do so much. They're good, but they are not ideal. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face because then my joy, yours and mine, it would be full. It'd be filling up and spilling over. It'd be complete. Flip your eyes over to 3 John. Now he's writing to an individual. And as he writes to this individual, notice again the love and affection starting in verse 2. Beloved, loved ones, Oh, I love you. I pray that all would go well with you and that you may be, you'd be in good health, which, as I've counted, by the way, this is a small parenthesis. Do you guys ever pray together with other people in Christian churches, Bible studies, and notice that a lot of times all they want to pray about is people's health? Well, here's a biblical basis. You should do that. But what's interesting is this is, as far as I can tell, the only explicit reference to praying for somebody's physical health which means the majority of prayer requests in the New Testament 
are going to be about spiritual health, kingdom of God advancement, the work of the church. I wonder if that equation reflects your prayer life. End of parentheses. I pray that it would be good with you, that you would have good health, and it would go well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Do you, do you hear the fatherly, affectionate knowledge that he has of these people? Is this an obvious point for all of us to agree upon today? This man writing this letter knows who he's writing to. He knows them. And he's a shepherd, a pastor. He knows them, knows what he needs to say to them, and they know him. He does not have bodyguards for church members or long, long lines of take a ticket. We might have a meeting in July. Church members, if you want to meet with your elders, I think you will be able to get one before July. I can't say that about every church in America. John knows his sheep, and therefore he is writing to them affectionately. He is breaking into poetic, song-like repetition in verses 12 to 14, if you want to turn back to our text that we're going to be looking at. And based on this basic observation, the I, I am writing to you, is a known relationship between a shepherd, pastoral leader of a local church and a group of people that he knows personally. So I'm asking you, who's your pastor? Do you have a relationship with someone like that? Am I your pastor? Am I preaching to you because I'm your pastor and you are church member, sheep of the flock that I shepherd, part of the body of Christ in which we are members of one another? I think it's clear from this text that John is preaching, and then notice all of the becauses, because, because, because. Let's, let's just read them together again. Because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Because you have overcome the evil one. Because you know the Father. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Why is John writing to them? Because he cares about the gospel. He cares about the gospel in them. Because he's a gospel preacher. I should be your pastor for at least two reasons. A, I'm faithfully preaching the gospel, or B, I have character qualifications that meet 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We're not talking about Titus and Timothy today, so let's just look at that first idea, able to teach the gospel. I should be your pastor if I'm faithfully preaching the gospel. I think, and I hope, and I pray that you're here today because you would like to hear not Phil's thoughts about the Iowa caucus, but that you would like to hear about Jesus Christ. Anyone? Amen? One of the basic things you should be looking for in a pastor is whether or not they are centered in their heart, in their life, and especially in their preaching on Jesus Christ. Let's say it the other way around. In case that seems too obvious, let's put it in the negative. I should not be your pastor if I do not preach to you the correct gospel. This is Mark number one, if you want to take notes. Who's your pastor? It shouldn't be me if I do not correctly preach the gospel to you. Fire Phil Howell immediately. On the basis of Galatians 1.6.9, if I give up the gospel of Jesus, if you're not familiar with this, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we 
or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be cursed. Damned, you could translate this as. As we have said before, I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I should be your pastor if I am faithful to the gospel. First and foremost, find a pastor who is faithful to the gospel of Jesus. Leave the church if you need to, or collectively pull together your authority as a congregation and remove me or any other elder that stays or strays away from the gospel instead of staying on the line of the word of God as the text of scripture demands. Notice that in Galatians 1, Paul says, it could be an angel from heaven. I don't care how amazing this person comes off to you as. They could have charisma. They could be really nice. They could fill in the blank. It doesn't matter. It's the gospel that matters. Second qualification. I should not be your pastor if I do not preach the gospel repeatedly. I said first correctly. I could get it right, but only do it once in a while. Those are two different things. I should want to repeat to you the gospel regularly. Does John do that in just these three verses, 12, 13, and 14? The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Your sins have been forgiven. That's gospel truth. You have an intimate knowledge of the one who is from the beginning, a relationship with the eternal God. That sounds like gospel. Overcoming the evil one through abiding in the word of God. He could have just said it one time, but he did it. He said it twice on the basis of not only our text, but really the entire canon of scripture. I would appeal to you that you should fire me or leave the church if I don't repeatedly give you the gospel week in and week out. D.A. Carson, former professor, retired now from Trinity, just up the street here, Deerfield, Illinois. He has helpfully explained that denying the gospel is a result of slow drifting away from the explicit preaching of the gospel. Here's his quote. This got me 15 years ago, like really shaped my mind about what it means to be a pastor. Carson writes, what happens is a first generation of Christian will joyfully receive, believe, and then proclaim the gospel. But then as the next generation grows up, they start assuming the gospel. And then on the basis of continued and prolonged assumption of the gospel, eventually the third generation raises up and denies the gospel. End quote. And a strong, strong warning to Embassy Church. Do not just have preachers that give lip service to the gospel correctly or sign a statement of faith that say, that's what I believe, but then they don't really talk about it. They don't preach it. They're interested in just a whole bunch of other things, and those things could be good things. Sometimes it's not bad theology. It's good theology. It's good things, but it's not the best things. It's not gospel things. I should be your pastor only if I'm correctly preaching the gospel and repeatedly preaching the gospel. Fire me or leave the church, please. I mean this. I know you guys love my family, but I would rather be out of a job because of you collectively staying faithful. Third, I should not be a pastor of Embassy Church and I should not be your pastor if I'm not passionately preaching the gospel passionately. Now, that's, this is a bit more subjective, so I want to allow for some grace of how we might define passionately. But if I seem bored with the gospel, so I could do a correct gospel presentation, and I could do a weekly gospel presentation, but if it seems like Phil's just not interested in Jesus that much, like he talks about it, and he's saying true things, but something's up. I'm smelling a, a kind of gospel drift of lack of joy or enthusiasm, other contemporary debates of the day start creeping into the sermons and crowding out the gospel and it's just like a small little tack on at the end. I'd be concerned. I think you should be concerned. It might be good to ask me to leave. 
We'll find another pastor. Thank you very much for your years of faithful service. We love you very much, but we love Jesus more. Embassy, are you guys getting the message? Am I your pastor? I want to be. But please, do not let your feelings for me get in the way of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So who's your pastor? Does he know the gospel? Does he preach the gospel? Is it consistent? Is it faithful? Is it passionate? Secondly, as it relates to this question about who's your pastor, I want to just ask, do you and I know each other? Like the way John describes in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, I've heard reports about you. I know the details of your life. I know what's going on. Now, in a room of this size, that'll vary. But I'm just asking, just generally, basically, do, do we know each other? Would you like to come into my home? I would love to have each of you over the course of 2024 into my home. Evangeline is nodding. Yes, please. Maybe not the entire family is nodding, but I want to just point this out. I'm preaching to you right now, and we don't have a TV screen behind me playing a sermon. Not because I'm the greatest preacher in the world. Let's just admit it. I, I'll admit it. It's because we know each other, and that's actually quite powerful and beautiful and God's plan and better than if some guy on a TV that you've never met and might never talk to on your entire earthly existence, you understood as, that's my pastor. Is Paul Washer your pastor? John MacArthur your pastor? Is Mark Dever your pastor? I am preaching to you, Embassy Church. I believe in part because of our covenantal relationship, because we've committed together that this is what we're going to do on Sundays. I brought up these three well-known pastor figures, Paul Washer, John MacArthur, Mark Dever, only to make this point. A few weeks ago, I was meeting with a group of pastors in our area. All of them have modest size, smaller kind of congregations of embassy size, plus or minus. One of these pastors said, hey guys, I got a phone call. And a woman called and she said, listen, we've never met, you don't know me, and I don't know you, but I just need somebody to tell me that I'm a Christian and I need you to help me to think through, am I a Christian or not? In light of our study of 1 John, like that's what 1 John is, is really kind of about. John trying to give assurance of salvation to those people that he loves, these people he's pastoring. And so here this pastor is telling me this story, and, and this is what the conversation was. She said, my local church pastor and all of my friends in my church, they tell me that I have like an overly sensitive conscience or something and that I'm, I'm really hard on myself too much. But like every time I listen to Paul Washer, man, I just don't know if I'm a Christian. So guys started talking about this, and it really doesn't matter if you do or don't know Paul Washer. The point is this, okay? Paul Washer can preach to the people that he needs to preach to. This local church pastor and this gathering of people are trying to encourage this person, hey, we think you're a Christian. As far as we can tell, it seems like you're bearing fruit in the gospel. But yet, she's taking the advice of some guy she's never met, more than likely, and hearing his sermons and applying them in a way that's probably inappropriate. And so this was my counsel. This is how I responded. I said, if it were me, I get that phone call. I'm going to say, with all due respect, please stop listening to Paul Washer. Not because of him, but because you should put more weight into the very people that you are living life with. I, I say this story because I fear some of you are in the exact same spot. The internet and the world of pastoral insight and counsel is at your fingertips and in your pockets. And how many of you have had anxiety about your salvation or about your struggles with sin and you are turning to someone you've never met and saying, oh, they're talking to me? I don't think that it is my job to defend or explain why certain pastors around the world are saying what they're saying and doing what they're doing. My job is to shepherd you. I'm preaching to you today. And so if another church 
And a global pandemic does things differently than what embassy does. Pray for them. We're responsible for these people in this place at this time. If they preach a sermon based off of events that happen related to racism, and they include that into their sermon, and we did or we didn't, like this is not some sort of tribal game to play to figure out which side are we on in the evangelical landscape. Embassy, let's love the people that are here in this room, and let's pray for our elders And let's stay faithful to one another in this relationship. If there's something that you think that we need to be including in the preaching of the word or in the ministries of the church, then let's talk about this and not what's going on in California or over in Washington, D.C. or up in Minnesota or anywhere else. As helpful as some of those conversations might be, I think they can sometimes distract us from what's right here. And if you would like to think about this from a non-Christian book recommendation, please read the book by Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Written in the 1980s, prophetically telling us, before the internet even was around, that the television would ruin us because it would make us so global instead of local. That point that he's making in that book is the same point I'm making to you now in this local church. Your faith will flourish much more when you lean into the local church relationships and I become your pastor. Or somebody else that faithfully, repeatedly, and passionately preaches the gospel. It does not need to be me. I hope that that is crystal clear. This is not about Phil. It is about you and me loving Jesus together, faithful to the scriptures, and that when we read the I am writing, it's a real man in real human history who personally knew the people he was talking to, and he knew exactly what he believed the Spirit needed to communicate through him. So your elders should commit ourselves to spend time in God's word, spend time in prayer together, and then spend time with you and then guide you accordingly. Or as I like to often tell you as you first visit the church, my commitment to Embassy Church is to preach, pray, love, stay. I would love for that to be our agreed upon relationship. Preach the gospel, pray a lot, love you as best as I can, and stay. Preach, pray, love, stay. Is that everything that the church is and should be? Absolutely not. But on this point, I am preaching to you, Embassy Church, Embassy Church family, which brings us to our second question. Am I your pastor? Secondly, um, is this your family? Now, if you're wondering, the reason I'm asking these questions in this way is because the majority of commentators are puzzled as to what John is doing in this section. It sticks out, as we've talked about. It's poetic. I think the best summary is that it's a rhetorical flourish. He's repeating himself, and he's saying it in this sort of way because he wants you to pause, and he wants you to be asking these questions. Who's my pastor? Like, what's the gospel? Who's my family? Am I in this family? So I ask you, who is your church family? Do you, do you have a church family? Who, who is he writing to? And this is where the puzzle gets all the more complex. There are so many different theories and ideas about who are the little children, who are the fathers, who are the young men. Are we talking about biological age? Are we talking about spiritual maturity? Are we talking really about like three different ways to talk about the same group of people? And although there are various possibilities regarding these people, and who they could be. Here's two basic truths I think we can all hopefully agree upon. First, the language of children, fathers, and young men, that's then repeated again in verse 14, communicates a unified family. A family. Or as my one-sentence summary begins, I, Phil Howell, am preaching to you, Embassy Church, and we're a family. What's the most common metaphor for Christian in the New Testament. Is there anything more frequent than family metaphors? Husband, wife, brother, sister, father, mother. All of them are used, and all of them are used abundantly. It communicates that the church is unified like a family's unified. Guys, how was the holidays? Thanksgiving, Christmas? I think church should feel a lot more like 
the messiness of a family reunion or the holiday get-togethers. With all of its beauty and all of its unfortunate mess. Do you all ever talk to people in such a way where you're like, well, they're family. I got to love them. What else are we going to do? I got to spend time with them. I got to support them. And for better and for worse, in a fallen world, that's us. That's Embassy Church. We're a family. A permanent, eternal, beyond this temporary life family. And so I want you to be asking yourself, do you, do you intentionally, consciously know that you have a family? Is it this one? You're here today. Is it because this is your family? Your spiritual family? Or do you still need to find one? And if you are in the search for a church, I would strongly, strongly encourage you to find a family more so than finding friends. Think about that. How many people look for church to be where they find friends over family? I use those words because there's a lot of times where church becomes just basically a social club rather than a family. The difference between your holiday gathering on Thanksgiving where grandma's there, grandpa, you know that uncle, some of your nieces, nephews, cousins, oh, they're coming this time, okay. That's family, for better and for worse, because we're unified even with people that we would not spend time with, that would not be our best friends. We would do that in family gatherings. But when, when we're just talking about friends, that's that's a little bit more picky. And that's where we start getting into the realm of the church becoming a marketplace and we use the language of church shopping when we look for a church. Are there enough friendship peer level relationships? Or are there young children, young men, parents, fathers, mothers? This second truth, the first is that we should all agree that this language is so typical of the New Testament and it communicates family. We're a family. But secondly, it communicates the diversity of this family. So the unity of the family, we're in this together for better or for worse. Because of Jesus. Because of the gospel, it necessitates loving people that you might not want to spend time with. And some people that you would love to spend time with. It's, it's a mixed bag. It's all of that in one. The unity is what I'm stressing in point one. In this second point about your looking for, searching, and wanting to be a part of a family, I think it would be ideal for this family to be diverse. God's intention for the Christian family would have various ages, various maturity levels, various giftings, and perhaps even quite literally just where you find yourself in a season of life. So you could read this as one interpretation stream of thought does. Is he's just literally talking about young people, like young children. And then he's talking about fathers and mothers, parents. Some take it even more strictly to say that fathers only means men and young men only means men and the women are excluded, which that's a whole other debate for another day as to the gender inclusivity of the, the, the language. I think the point, the broader, just simple point that we should hopefully all agree upon is the diversity of this language. He could have just said children like he does in chapter 2, verse 1. My, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. And he's going to say this again in chapter 2, verse 18. Just before and after, you can see he's constantly talking about them as children. It's just a way to say that we're all children of God. We're all sons and daughters of God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. But this is really unique. It's really unique for a New Testament author, but especially John, to talk about fathers and young men. 
And then notice the repetition. Verse 13 says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then look at verse 14, the parallel. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. So that's consistent. And then look at 13, second half. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then he says the same thing, but adds a phrase. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides you, but then the repetition of overcome the evil one. And this is why it's caused people to meditate, to say, perhaps this diversity is related to where, well, little children are like new believers, and they just had their sins forgiven. But then fathers are those who know the deep things of the eternality of God, and they've been around a while. But the young men, they've grown up a little bit, and they might often kind of clash with those who are older in the church, and those who are younger, having different visions of how to see things, and so they're They're the overcomers. They're the go-getters. They're the doers. And so these are some things that people want to speculate about. I don't know how sure we can be about any of those lines of interpretation. But those two points, first, we're a family. And second, that family unity should be displayed by our increased diversity. Do you pray for that? Do you you actually look around the room and see generational diversity as well as it's reflected here and like praise God for that? Do you know one of the things that I don't love is when someone's like, this just seems like it's a church for, and then whatever term they want to throw out, young church, young families. Can I make it crystal clear today? This is a church for Jesus. This is a church for people who love Jesus the gospel of Jesus. Single? Married? Have you been divorced before? Are you old in your age? Are you young in your age? Are you a brand new believer? But do you all realize that the messiness of the family, it gets more messy the more diverse it is? (laughs) Like when we come from different cultural backgrounds, when we have different families that shaped the way we think, Some of you are from another part of the world and you've been formed in just a completely different way of thinking and then you're here with us. I find that beautiful and humbling because it makes Jesus look like he's the actual magnet that attracted us in the first place and when that mess occurs, which is called sin, when we offend one another and sin against each other, we then turn and run to Jesus. It makes much of Jesus In the beginning, it makes much of Jesus in the middle of the mess, and it makes much of Jesus when we reconcile, hug one another, and then spend all of eternity, every tribe, tongue, and nation, reflecting here on earth, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Embassy Church, we're a family, and I would love you to know, without getting too choked up and emotional, I love this family. I am not feeling like this is a job. I I love Embassy Church family. I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't want to move anywhere. I didn't do graduate education so I could then raise up my professional level and move on from here to do something else. I just want to be here. As long as possible. Please fire me, though, if I don't preach the gospel. Those don't have to be contradictory statements. I love the fact that this church is generous. I have never had to beg for you to give more so we would meet budget. Never once. I love that. I love the faithful giving of these church members. I love the fact that when I go around and meet with other people that have had the experience and the privilege of helping start a brand new church from day one, they are blown away when I tell them, We were able to hire me as the full-time pastor before year one was even over. It's it's unthinkable. It's crazy. And again, as I've said in other times, it's not because as far as I'm aware that somebody just gave some giant endowment of like, well, my grandma passed away and I had $250,000 just laying around, so here you go, Embassy Church. No, that's not the story. It's not just one generous donor. It is people who love Jesus even when it was 20-some people in a living room, slowly and surely, faithfully giving. 
I love the generosity of embassy. I love embassy's love for scripture and God's word and how people are hungry for it. I love that last year we took up a survey and asked, hey guys, are, are you content with the offerings that we provide for you in terms of discipleship? And the answer was, no, we want more. There might be various ways to interpret that, but in general, I love the fact that you love the Bible. I love the commitment to prayer. There's a prayer meeting every single week at 1015 downstairs where we give announcements and we pray. And then we pray, obviously, in this worship service. And then there's a prayer meeting on Wednesday. And then there's a church member that's saying, you know what I would love to see at this church? Another prayer meeting. I love that. I love that people want to gather together for prayer. And they always have been members of this church that are committed to prayer. Perhaps one of the things I am most thankful to God for and most humbled by is the fact that there is unity in the gospel and that the things that I've already preached in this message, I'm preaching to you, Embassy Church, and I'm preaching these things because they're true. They're true. We went through a global pandemic and the 2020 election, and I have been able to report from any other church that I've talked to that as far as I'm aware, there has not been some kind of small, minor split or major split. Unless you all remember how the last three years, four years went differently. I find that incredible. And most people, when I tell them that, they're telling me about how like, we lost about half of our membership during that time. People couldn't love each other through mask mandates, church closures, and political turmoil. By the grace of God, hallelujah, amen, I'm not patting myself on the back here. I'm telling you, I love you all. This is amazing. This is a gift of the Holy Spirit. This, this is not something I can take credit for, or you for that matter. Embassy, I love your concern for the lost, that you care about people that don't know Christ and you want to share the gospel with them. Your zeal for holiness, your hospitality to have people over in your houses for a meal or overnight or for a long period of time, even months. That's something I've seen repeatedly in the last 10 years. And I think it's probably fair to say as a little caveat, could I easily say, are we, are we hitting a home run on all of these? I'm just talking about evidences of God's grace and work of the Holy Spirit and reasons why I think this is a pleasant congregation to be a part of, a family that I deeply love and want to be a part of. I think I'm especially impressed with this idea of hospitality and the fact that there's a pastor friend of mine here in the community and I was describing what life was like in our church. And he's like, oh, people never get together. Like, they just go to church and then they just do whatever they're going to do the rest of the week. Like, you guys, you guys, like, have meals in each other's homes? It's like a foreign alien concept. I'm like, you don't? What, what's going on? As we celebrated downstairs, I love the fact that you all serve children and care about families and at the same time this is not a family-centered church where we've idolized the family at the exclusion of people that don't have young children i think there's an important balance to make between a church that's only about raising up little families of children versus those that care about them deeply so i want to make you all aware that as i preach to you embassy church and consider this my family I do so out of sincere love for you and ultimately as a reflection, I think, of God's love for you. There are some of us in this room that this is, this is family. They've had friends move away. They've seen taxes for their house only go up with no hope of them ever going down. Ain't that the truth? Politics. Did you all move to Illinois or live here because you love the politics? How about the weather? Let's talk about that. Who's your family is the question. There are some people who do not have family members biologically precisely because they've turned from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. Please be aware of that. 
We are going to be, even right now, some people's only real family. And I think that if we continue to love the gospel and preach the gospel and see people come to faith in Jesus, that will continue. Finally, based on these three questions, who's your pastor, who's your family, there's one final question. Well, who, who are you? And like John, inspired by the Spirit, I'd like to encourage you with the gospel. I'd like you to know with certainty, and I'm especially speaking to any of you who are covenant members of this church. I have sat down with you. I feel like even though all of us aren't best of friends, we're faithful members of this family together. And the reason that we have the membership stance that we do is so that there will be times where you need a loving pastor or church member. This is not limited to the office of elder pastor. But you need someone who knows you that will sit you down, look you in the face, and say, Brother, your sins already are now forgiven in Christ Jesus. Now, but Phil, I need to confess I sinned last night again. Brother, I know that you're grieved by that sin, and I know that you know the Father through Christ the Son, and for the glory of his name, he punished sin on the cross for you. Receive the forgiveness of sins. John is not asking questions. He is making declarative statements. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins already are forgiven according to, on the accounting of the character of God, the sake of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, the eternal God outside of all of creation, above it. He created us in his image. And even though we've sinned against him, we can have a personal, intimate knowledge relationship with God. And some of you are parents, spiritual parents, older in life, more mature in the faith. And I would love to just remind you that you know him. You know the one who is from the beginning. You know the eternal creator God of the universe. I know that you know this. I've spent time with you. I've heard you pray. I've seen your walk with Christ. I've seen your repentance of sin. And you know him. You can have confidence and assurance that you're a Christian and that the one who saved you, the one who created everything by that powerful word, he'll keep you to the end. I know that about you. I'm not some guy on a screen. I know your life well enough to be able to confidently say, I know that about you. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, young men, young women, because your strength, it's in the word of God. You're strong. You're strong because God's word abides in you. And get this, young men, anyone that is tempted as he's about to say in the next section of Scripture, verse 15 to 17. Loving the world with the lust of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, you have already started to overcome. To hate your sin, to turn from sin, and just even those evidences of turning are encouragements that you're not in the darkness anymore. You have overcome the evil one, so... Receive the gospel. John's way of writing here is so encouraging because he is not trying to tell them, I'm writing to you because, well, your sins have yet to be forgiven and you need the gospel. Or I'm writing to you in order to tell you about a father that you do not know or don't already have a relationship with. He doesn't say that he's writing to a group of people that have had zero victories. You have had victories. Are you satisfied with the progress from which you have come from? Probably not. But please receive the encouragement that you know the truth. You're abiding in that truth and you have already started and will continue to overcome the evil one. 
And I want more than anything to be able to not only say that from a pulpit, but sit across a table or sit on my couch and tell that to your face. And I want our elders to multiply that work, and I want you as the priesthood of all believers to do that with one another as often as you get opportunity. Do you think, regardless of your Bible knowledge, you could sit down with somebody or take a phone call and have them say, I'm really struggling. And then you'd be able to say, well, then let's turn to Jesus. Let's confess these sins and let's run to the cross. Do you think you could do that? I think you can. I really do. You may not say it perfectly, but just that basic move. I'm really sorry. I don't know what all to say, but here's what I do know. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let's get it out into the light and let's turn to our advocate who's at the Father's right hand. He has forgiven us of all of our sins. Hallelujah. Amen. This is what I mean when I say, who are you? Embassy church? Members of this church? You're a Christian. John is not writing to a group of people that he's unsure of where they're at. He's, he's confident. Look down. Last verse. We'll close here. Verse 21. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. So I preach to you, Embassy Church, those of you who have repented of your sin, and put your faith in Jesus, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And I just want to encourage you in this identity that this would be how you answer the question, I'm in him. I'm his. He's mine. Let's close in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we want to pray in the name of your Son, and we want to pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to encourage us with gospel truths today. We want to pray that you would make Embassy Church as a family that loves one another, and that we would be able to grow increasingly diverse in our earthly differences, but greater unity in our spiritual strength in God's word. We pray, God, that this would be a faithful family, faithful to the, the preaching of the gospel and the spreading of your word to all nations. We ask that you would be glorified and honored for your namesake through our time together in this worship service. In Jesus' name, amen.